Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. Great to see you. The reason why I'm up here, Chris is on vacation. We gave him one week off before school starts. And babies come and all that kind of stuff. I just like to look at you and see who's here. Well, I have an interesting message for you. We'll see how it comes out. Since I've been in the church since this very beginning, I'm going to tell you some secrets. I'm going to tell you some secrets for growth, progress, and if you'll practice these things, you will always be successful. How many want to hear that? In a way, I'm kind of reviewing what Chris has talked about the last few weeks. I'm going to review it kind of in my words and hopefully put us on a path uh, to great blessing and encouragement and strength. Are you ready? Father, we just pray for this service. We pray for the anointing. We pray for the touch of the master's hand. We pray this room would be filled with the glory of the Lord. Your grace would just come down and sweep over us. Lord, you promised that where you see the God's people praising, you will dwell there. And so, Father, I feel your presence, and I pray grace, grace, as we speak today in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you ready? That was good baptism. Bless you. In 1722, there was an interesting thing that occurred in Germany. During that year, a man by the name of Count Zinzendorf, who had been slated to be in government, and slated to kind of rule over areas, decided that he wanted to go the religious or spiritual route. And so in 1722, he bought the estate of his grandmother, and he began a town called Hernhut. He, what he did, he hoped to form a Christian community for oppressed minorities. At that time, uh, everything was kind of legalistic. It was about two centuries after Martin Luther had nailed the 95 theses to the door of the church. All of a sudden, 1722, a man by the name of Christian David, who was a Moravian, who was a Christian minority, there weren't many of them at the time, but he showed up as the first of many. By 1725, there were 90 Moravians on his estate. And by 1726, there were 300. As he began to build this little community, in 1727, the Holy Spirit came upon them as they were in prayer. And the Holy Spirit showed them to start praying. They started a 24-hour prayer watch called, in Hernhut, is called the Lord's Watch. That's what it means. This 24-hour prayer 
lasted for 120 years. Historians say it was the longest prayer event in history. It started a community of believers that transformed the known world. Their scripture was Isaiah 62, verse 6. I have posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. They began with 24 men and 24 women, each praying an hour a day around the clock, continued for 120 years. As this prayer happened, the results of this prayer, I'll just explain this to you, Hernhut was the very first Protestant missionary movement in the history of the church. They sent missionaries to Africa, to the Americas, to the east, the four corners of the earth. In 1731, Count Zinzendorf went to Denmark. At Denmark in Denmark, he met a man from the West Indies who pled with him to send people. They didn't even know what missionaries were back then because there was no such thing. He pled with them to send people to West Indies that they might receive Jesus. And so two men volunteered. Following that, they, they, uh, 70 missionaries went out over the course of the next few years out of a group of 600. By the time Zinzendorf, Count Zinzendorf died in 1760, they had sent out over 226 missionaries. Now, we've often heard that uh, there was a, uh, William Carey was the father of all missions. I would say Hernhut and the Moravians and Count Zinzendorf was the father or the beginning out of this community of believers of missionaries around the world. In fact, if you go to Pennsylvania today, you will go to Bethlehem or Nazareth, and that in that area, it is where the Moravians established a colony, and in Pennsylvania, it was under the auspices of William Penn, who was a believer, Pennsylvania was established as a righteous religious colony. They established a colony in North Carolina, in Winston-Salem area, under the name of Wachovia, which was a name out of Germany. And out of that came a revival that hit all of that area. In fact, some historians say that because of the Moravians coming as missionaries to America, we had our great awakening. It started with a community of believers that prayed. Now, discord attempted to arise in Hernhut, but Count Zinzendorf came and and established some what they called manorial rules. And he put watchmen and different people in function and asked them to be in unity. And he said this. He said, there can be no Christianity without community. Now, you're not hearing me. There can be no Christianity without community. In other words, you were made to be in community. As a believer, you cannot be by yourself. You will, it, it would be like a fish out of water. As a fish, a fish is meant to be in water. A Christian is meant to be in community. And you will flourish in community. And we see the importance they, they play. They, they, they emphasize the experience of faith 
and love over doctrine. They believed that Christianity should be a religion of the heart because at that time it was all doctrine and, and, and uh, legalism. And, but they placed special emphasis on community. They created small groups called choirs. But the choirs weren't singers. They were just choirs of small groups. That's what they called them. They started sending missionaries. They sent missionaries to Jamaica. Now get this. To Jamaica during that time period. And a third of the island got saved. Now I don't care what revival you see. If a third of the people come to know Jesus, there's revival. And so we see this, this power of, of, uh, of community. The, the Moravians deeply influenced John Wesley, who rode on a boat from Europe to America with them. A great storm came. The storm broke the main mast, and they thought they were going to sink. But in the middle of that, the, these Moravians were courageous, faith-filled, and didn't panic. All the rest of them began to panic. And that impressed John Wesley so much that he went to Hernhut, and when he went there, he said, I wish I, could, I never had to leave because of the presence of God. Last year, on the anniversary of Hernhut, I don't know what anniversary it was, a friend of mine from New Mexico went there. He called me and says, Ken, I'm going to Hernhut, Germany, pray for me. They went there and they had a Christian conference. He told me when he returned, I have never been at a place where I felt so much history and the power of God emanating in me as something like Hernhut. He said, we went to the cemetery and looked at the headstones and the power of God almost put us on our back. Jesus did something powerful in that community. I'm here today to tell you that we can have the same thing if we want it. What if over the next 100, 120, 150 years, those of us in this room, those of us who follow, will be so much integrated into community and committed to, the, to faith in Jesus Christ together that we will pray, we will believe, and God will send a revival. Zinzendorf was called the first noble Jesus freak. They called him the Jesus freak. Their scripture was also Leviticus 6.13, which says the fire must be kept burning in the altar continuously. It must not go out. Can I tell you something today? I'm going to try to... Re review all that Chris said in my words and try to impact you and try to come up with, with some understanding of what, what we need to see in our life. God wants to build a community. Now, what we as believers do, we tend to, to individualize everything in Scripture so that everything is for us individually. And that's true. You get saved individually. You get baptized individually. You get all these things. But the Bible also says you're added to the church. In other words, without community, your faith has no meaning. Stay with me. Because 
Faith in a community together brings strength. If one can put a thousand and two can put ten thousand, three can put a hundred thousand, God does something in community. Now, God starts by doing something. I think this is the most amazing thing. God starts by delivering us out of darkness into light. Now, this is the most amazing thing. We sit here and we just get, oh, well, oh, yeah, they, they got saved. Yeah, they got saved. What does that mean? It means their heart and life transform from being dark and being headed for eternal, eternity to, in hell to an eternity with Jesus and living with him forever. And in a community of believers, there is an, there is an amazing transformation that takes place. That is what happens. We get saved. And then Jesus comes along and says, oh, and by the way, I have some things for you to do. And he asks us to obey certain things. These are all elements of the early church community, which I'm going to read in just a minute. And so he says, first of all, after you get saved, I want you to be put into a, into a community of believers. In other words, I want you to get planted. I want you to get planted. Now, if I were to tell you today what the, the, the single most important element in my life, in my family's life that I operated in, that we decided to do at the very early age was plant ourselves in the house of the Lord. Listen to these scriptures. Psalm 92, verses 12 through 14. The righteous shall flourish, so shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still, I like this, they shall still bear fruit in old age. And they shall be fresh and flourishing. Notice this. Now, notice it says, those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. What is the antithesis of that? If you're not planted, you don't flourish. Come on, stick with me here. Meaning that God says planting is very important. Psalm 1-3, you know this scripture. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. We gotta be planted by the rivers of water. We gotta be planted in the house of the Lord. It's interesting, God calls us as trees. Leviticus says a man's life is as a tree. So he's saying that you've got, you take all the trees that are spoken of in the Bible and the application of that is for our lives. He likens us to trees. A, a, tree, a man's life is almost the same age as a tree's life. It's that, that you know, length of time. So we see this, Isaiah 61.3 says, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. We see he, he says, we're as trees and we got to get planted. Ephesians 3, 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded are planted in love. We've got to see the importance of planting. The church, our community becomes our garden in which we grow and we flourish. We are nurtured, we're fertilized, we're protected, we're edified so that we can grow into mature trees. You've got to be planted. Now, I, sh I should just camp here and preach this for the rest of the time. I, this is the single most, the greatest reason why I believe my kids are in ministry. Now, let me just say this. You, you have to be in community. Even as a parent, you cannot, you cannot do the parenting yourself of all your children. There's no way you can, 
you can parent your children by yourself. You need, it takes a community. It takes a community in the church. I know that's one of the reasons why my kids are in ministry right now is because they saw a model, not in me, but in those older. You see, we have a whole generational process here. We saw this at camp. And the reason why, you know, Shane and Kirsten are here is because their parents planted in the house of the Lord. Now their children are planted in the house of the Lord. I see this over and over again. I saw, was it two weeks ago, little Sophie was up here. And she was telling about the good things of God. You know, the reason, she, I asked her this week, hey, Sophie, how old Sophie? She's 11 years old. I asked Sophie this last week because she got up here and testified to all the good things that God was doing uh, during camp. I said, would you like to share again? She says, Pastor Ken, I'll share anytime you want. I'd be happy to. And I'm going, where'd this girl come from? <laughs> I'm just, it was, uh, those of you who are here, do you remember her? That was awesome. And let me say it this way. Do you know why that came out of Sophie's mouth? Is because of Joe and Karen, they're planting. Joe told me a story this last week about how he committed to plant himself in this house before he was even married. He met his wife here, his children are being raised here, his grandchildren would be raised here. I mean, it, it goes on. Dave, you decided to plant you and your family here. Look what happened two Sundays ago with Logan up here in the platform. I'm telling you, something happens when we do a planting. It affects our children and our grandchildren. You will flourish when you get planted. I, I, I don't even know how else to say it. And I see, you know, tree, when trees get uprooted, they get dwarfed. You don't see a lot of flying trees. But there are a lot of flying Christians. They never get rooted. They never flourish. They go from church to church, almost like a cafeteria. What are you serving me this week? doesn't matter what you're serving. You'll get planted and God will do the nurturing. And to see, to see. You know, Roxy, I saw stone. I just love his worship. It's because of Carol and you being planted here. You see these kids growing up in the house of God. I just... I'm popping my buttons because I'm like daddy too. I'm like a grandfather and a father to all these kids. And it's su such a delight because you've chosen to plant yourself. And I, I, can't, I can't say enough. This is what we need to see as the secret sauce of the church is planting. We'll talk a little bit more about that. You still with me? Now, I want to read Acts 2.40. Chris read it two weeks ago. I'm going to read it again. And I'm going to apply this to our community and the different elements of the community. In Acts 2.40, it says, And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and in prayers. And then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Everything is happening here. It says, And now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, and the Lord added to the church daily. You got everything. You got people being saved. You got people being baptized. 
You have people being planted or added. You've got people participating in teaching, apostles' doctrine, fellowship, which is koinonia, which is supernatural. The word koinonia is not just fellowship and getting together. It has to do with supernatural activity and growth that happens when you fellowship with people. In the breaking of bread, which is, which is the communion table and in prayers. And then it says wonders and signs were done. And then generosity came and they, they, they helped each other through this whole process. And they continued with one accord, breaking bread from house to house, and they ate their food. There's a lot of eating here. Chris talked about that, what, three weeks ago? Tabling? Tabling? Come on. Tabling. There's, there's something. All the elements of the community are here, but you got to get planted to experience the blessing of the elements of God. If not, you will become an attender, not a receiver. We don't attend church we are the church. And when we come together as the community, something happens. Even your presence does something. Even your presence. You, you were brought here today to encourage someone, to bless someone, to pray for someone. It's not the pastor's responsibility to do all this. It's all of ours. And if we reach out, step out, God put me here to do something for someone today. This is just the community of believers at Capitol. We just happen to meet on a Sunday and whenever, whatever time else we want to meet. But I'm telling you, we've got to reach out and see this thing happen. This scripture that I mentioned has all the elements of community. And notice, I'm going to talk about this for a few minutes. The food and tabling is what glues them together. Food is very important in the community. And I say amen to that. I love eating. Don't you, Kate? Oh, it's just wonderful. I'm even thinking about right now, where shall I go to eat? Okay. <laughs> but interestingly enough, food is how sin entered the world. But food is also how we express our freedom in our Christianity. The table of the Lord, fellowship koinonia, it's all about the food, the table, that which we eat together. We're bound together by our eating together. Interesting, there, there are restaurants everywhere. They're, they're in, and one of the biggest decisions of the week or the day is where are we going to go eat? We flip a coin or whatever. My wife just texted me before I got up here and said, where are we going to go eat? So, <laughs> The word fellowship is that Greek word kononia. Think about this. Jesus performed the first miracle at, the, at a wedding reception where they were eating and drinking. He performed miracles of multiplication of food. All these things. It was, it was given as a sign of the power of community and what binds us together and glues us together. Boy, it's hot up here. It's okay. We turn, to, turn the air down some more, Bob. Okay. Now, as I was getting ready for this message, the Lord gave me a revelation. Are you still with me with all this? All, I'm, 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 I got a lot of parts to this, so you stay with me. Stay with me. You got to stay with me. God gave me a revelation. We always consider prayer as so important to the church, and I would say yes and amen to that because it really is. But then the Lord showed me that there are actually two rails for the church to ride on as a train or a locomotive would go on. One rail is not enough. 
you need the second rail. And we know prayer as being one of the main rails of the church. It keeps us moving. But there's another rail that the Lord spoke to me just this last week. It's the complement to prayer. Do you know what it is? I had never thought about it in this way before. It's generosity. What am I saying? You see, generosity being the second rail of the community of of the church, it must be in place for us to complete our mission. We can pray all we want, but if we don't have generosity, there's no way of giving, there's no way we can complete our mission. And so the Lord spoke to me and said, those who give in extraordinary ways and sacrifice, those who give uh, uh, first fruits, those are the people that are planting themselves in such a way to activate the power of God that prayer brings. Prayer brings the atmosphere of heaven into the church, but generosity activates the ability to complete the mission. And he showed that to me, and I go, oh my word, So giving is actually a natural intercession or prayer element. It's the natural activation of our spiritual belief system. And the the element in the community, now watch this. Is he still with me? Watch this. So prayer, generosity, the church moves forward. We take the prayer out. We don't have the impetus and the power. We can't go anywhere. We take the generosity out, and we can't complete our mission. You have both of them together and something happens. We can complete something that will change the world. Now, the attitude that will help all that is what Chris talked about last week. Stop complaining. We've got to be people of appreciation because life is a gift. And we have to start thanking God. I love what what Shane said today. Thank you is our password. Come into his presence with thank yous, with appreciation, a continual confession of thankfulness and non-complaining. Because you know what complaining Complaining invites the spirit of the enemy and defeat into our midst. That's what it does. Stop that right now. Now, having said all that, we talked about those elements. Now I want, the Lord spoke to me and said, you give them this point today. Right now, We live in a world where the gap between scarcity and abundance seems to grow wider each day. The church needs to be a testimony of the kingdom of God. It is the community representing God himself. That's why he says, when you pray, pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, God wants to do on earth things that are being done in heaven right now, but it's the community of believers that are going to activate that through the elements that I've already talked about and then activating the generosity. But generosity can only come if you have this mindset. Now stay with me. This is the mindset we must have. It is a mindset of abundance. The problem is our world is alive with a a, a thought process of scarcity. It's active in our world. It's active in politics. It's active in, in all the different ways that people are polarizing and antagonizing each other. It's where politicians pit the poor against the wealthy and move into class welfare of envy and strife. I think three fourths of our politicians should resign 
and then we tutor the rest of them on how to, how to have the right mindset. I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican, that's the truth. I'm with them, I know what they think. <laughs> James 3.16 says, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. What now? I, now, I don't want to get into this, but I... Whenever you hear a leader or a politician dividing the people, it's wrong. It's anti-biblical. Whenever you hear someone say, we're going to take from this group and we're going to give it to this group. Why are they saying that? Because they have a mindset of scarcity. There's not enough to go around. So we're going to take from the rich and give to the poor. That's not biblical. I'm just, don't. I don't care what politician says that. My point being, all through Scripture, the theme of Scripture is abundance. It's not scarcity. It's not about, well, we don't have enough. That's not biblical. And so we see this. When a, when a person starts saying those things and you hear this, where we're going we're gonna to take from the rich because they have so much, that's not Bible. It's never taking. It's always giving. Remember, the, the church is not a part of a religion. A church is a kingdom. So what does the kingdom say about abundance and scarcity? It, it, we, we have to understand this. The issue involves whether there's enough to go around. Is there enough food, water, shelter, space? And God says, yes, I made it all. It's an, the, ideal, the ideology of scarcity says, no, there's not enough. So hold on to what you have. In fact, just don't hold on to it. Hoard it. Put aside more than you need because you're probably going to need it in the future. But the ideology of abundance, which is kingdom thinking says that there's enough to go around and there will even be more than enough left over. Jesus kept proving this. The Bible is about abundance. That's the mindset we have to have as a community of believers to understand the prayer effort, to understand generosity, to understand all the other things. I've been given gifts to give away. If you hold back in your gift, you're saying there's scarcity. You've got to allow the gift. The gifts weren't given to you so you can say, look at me. They're given to you to give away to someone else. That's, that's the abundance. And I, Can I tell you something? If you'll give it away, you'll get more. That's what the Bible says. Given, it should be given unto you. That, that's the principle. So an ideology of, of abundance. The Bible is about this. Let me, let me prove this to you. Genesis 1.22, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. Genesis 1.20, then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. Genesis 1.28, then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God's generosity and fidelity are shown in the creation story. He set a, a world in motion with abundance. And then it says God rested. So he worked, set everything in order, then he rested because he wanted to see if it worked. 
You see, the mechanisms are in place. The systems have been put in order. The world is to have an abundance. The biblical narrative illustrates mankind's wrestle with this idea. We wrestle with it. We are programmed not to believe in abundance. For when sin entered, limitation and scarcity were sin products. And it was a part of the curse. When God says, no, my word says there's abundance. I need a towel. Can you give me a towel? So, let me explain this to you. I'm going to go to the Old Testament, then I'm going to go to the New Testament. You still with me? You got to get this, you got to get this in your mind. So, in the Old Testament, during the time of the nation of Israel, God hears the cries of his children, and he sends Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. You know the story. Well, God doesn't want to, God doesn't accept no for an answer. How many of you know God never accepts no for an answer? It takes some convincing, like uh, divine intervention, like plagues, but eventually Pharaoh said yes. Now, they weren't going to go just to go free, but also to experience the God of abundance. However, it isn't long before what they have left behind starts to look good compared to what they have to face. And so they, they, left, they left this land, Uh, They left the land of scarcity thinking they would bounce immediately into the land of abundance. But instead, they find themselves at risk in a wilderness, a desert with no visible life support systems. It's a place of scarcity where where even bread seems like impossible. They've lived their whole lives with this attitude of scarcity, so they continue with it. And now it doesn't seem to have changed. Now it looks like they're in greater risk. Why did you take us out, God? And they begin to complain and murmur and condemn and regret. Then all of a sudden, in this desert wilderness, bread appears. Say bread. Bread Bread appears. Now think about this. Remember what I just said, bread. Bread appears. What is it? It's manna. Now this is the Old Testament story. It's a flaky substance, but it's, it's illustrative of God's faithful generosity. This this bread violates all that they know, all that they understand. It overturns their conviction about scarcity and it cancels their anxiety about getting hungry and never having enough food. The gift of bread transforms the wilderness and they learn that a place of perceived scarcity may actually turn out to be a place of wondrous abundance when God is a part of those things. Can I tell you right now, I don't care where you are, what wilderness you're in, God can turn your wilderness into an amazing, blossoming paradise. And so that's what we see here. Now, The New Testament, Jesus comes along and he's all about generosity and fidelity too. And so we see this, uh, we see a feeding narrative. uh, Chris has been talking about this. You remember last week we talked about the the feeding of the 5,000 in uh, Mark chapter six. It's the feeding of the 5,000. This is an interesting, you gotta stay with me on this. Most people don't realize this, but two chapters later, we see you football players. God bless you guys. They're, they got to go to practice. God bless you. Two chapters out of, after Mark 6, Mark 8 happens. Mark 8 is the feeding of the 4,000. Did you know that? 
there's not just one miracle of feeding. There were two. Now, notice what happens. Why in the world were there two? Well, Mark 6.52, so Jesus feeds the 5,000. They get in a boat, and they're out on this, on this stormy sea. Jesus is walking on the water, and Mark 6.52 says, For they had not understood, they're in this boat, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Now, why is it in a storm the Bible indicates that they didn't understand about what just happened and their heart was hardened. Stay with me. So along comes Mark 8, the feeding of the 4,000. Jesus notices that the people there who have been listening to him, they've run out of food. And so this has happened before. We, we already know this. But hunger scarcity isn't just a one-time experience. Jesus isn't in the symbolic gesture business. He's in the generosity business. This means he's constantly alert to any mismatch between the generosity of God and the needs of the people. He's always looking for someone to help. Jesus is moved by compassion. He has a sense of emergency. They have nothing to eat. Jesus points it out. And he points it out hoping that it would jar his disciples' memory. Remember two chapters ago, guys? They don't. It's like their minds are blank. And they say, well, we can't, how are we going to do this? We're in the wilderness. It's a desert. And, and how are you going to feed all these? What do you mean how we can't? you remember what just happened? But no such luck because their minds have been, have been stuck on scarcity. And they say, how can you feed these people with bread in the desert? They've been invaded again by the pragmatism and the anxiety of the world. I'm telling you, every week you're going to get this out there. Everything, there's not enough. There's not enough. God, God can't provide for you. That is not in God's heart at all. And these disciples are saying, you can't feed them. It won't work. But Jesus, again, has abundance on his mind. He asks a question again. How many loaves do you have? You would think that would catch the disciples. Oh, yeah, that sounds like, uh, boy, this is deja vu. But they don't even catch it. And they said, well, seven. Duh. So they bring seven loaves to Jesus. This most amazing, in verse four of this chapter, it says the disciples question finding bread in the desert or the wilderness, which is an echo of the children of Israel in the book of Exodus. They're in the wilderness. And then seven loaves actually evoke the number of days God spent creating the world of abundance. Mark is trying to get something across. He's bringing into the minds of the disciples and all of us an understanding of abundance. And then Jesus, Jesus remembers his mother's song. I, I hate to bring all this detail in, but Jesus remembers the mother, his mother, Mary, who sang a song in Luke 1. In Luke 1, 52, it says he has filled the hungry with good things. She's talking about abundance. He is also remembering Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1, who began, who's the mother of Samuel, who says those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry or fat with spoil. He's remembering the songs of Mary and Hannah. Those were both songs, which are songs of generosity. And because Jesus is well-schooled in this transformative generosity of God and the kingdom of God, and the conviction that if you share your bread with your neighbor, the world will be made brand new. 
Wow, I, that, that was a powerful statement. It'll be made brand new. He knows that generosity isn't something you just think about. Generosity is something you do. And Mark uses four words to describe what Jesus did. He took, he gave thanks, he broke, and he gave. Those are Eucharist, Eucharist words. Those are the communion words. So here in the wilderness, the desert, Jesus uses seven loaves to conduct a sit-down Thanksgiving dinner that matches the needs of the people with the generosity of God. His actions are transformative. Can you imagine the people who are sitting there? The bread stays exactly what it is. It's still bread, yet it becomes something it never was. A carrier of all the hidden powerful gifts of God. The crowd stays as it is, but it becomes something no one ever would expect. A viable place of existence, the arena for the glory and the reign of God in a desert place. And the desert stays as it is, but it becomes something that no one would ever expect this viable place of existence. It now appears that Genesis 1 appears in Mark 8 and the world is again made new. Do you know that every time you operate in generosity and give bread away or give something away, you are saying God's world is brand new. You are operating, you're activating this abundant world. So let me say this. Gifts, when they are blessed and broken and given have immense potential of miracles. And here we see the unlimited generosity of God. But we don't usually experience the world that way because our mindset is involved in scarcity. Now, here's a follow-up story. Follow-up stories in Mark 8. Now here, now notice that I've been talking about bread all this time because bread actually represents the miracle and the provision of God. Mark 8, 13, the disciples are now out in a boat with Jesus. Again, they go out in a boat. I don't know why they always go out in a boat after they feed four or 5,000, but they, here they are ending up in a boat again. And guess what? The Bible says they had forgotten to bring any bread. Here we go again. These guys, don't they get it? Once again, they've forgotten that Jesus... It's in the generosity business. Jesus notices it and says something. He doesn't talk about bread. He talks about this. He's addressing their mindset. He says, the, the Pharisees are the parts. He says, watch out or beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. He, the Pharisees are the parsimonious ones who want to ration everything. Uh, you know, scarcity. The Herodians, those of Herod, are like Pharaoh who want to monopolize everything, store it up, and administer it. Jesus is warning them, watch out for their junk food. It brings in you into a land of scarcity when I brought you into a community of believers to demonstrate abundance through your generosity. Wow. I don't know if well, I want to think about that. But the disciples continue to murmur about the bread they forgot. So Jesus asked them a question, why, why are you talking about bread? Do you still not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Jesus is really saying this. Have you forgotten that abundance has vetoed scarcity? Church, abundance has vetoed scarcity. If we will be carriers and not keep things, not hoard things, 
but give them away. And more questions. Jesus says this. Now, these are questions that he probably would be asking us. Have you ever noticed that Jesus doesn't answer questions? He just asks a lot of questions. He says, when I fed 5,000 with just five loaves, how many were left over? Twelve. There's always leftovers with Jesus. And he says, when I fed the 4,000, how many were left over? Seven. There's always leftovers. The disciples are really good at concrete statistical stuff, but they can't negotiate this, this heady stuff, this objective to the big picture. And Jesus says, do you not yet understand? They were stuck in the anxiety of the moment. They have lost sight of the message from the past, and they're stuck in scarcity. So I say to us today, if we're not careful, we'll become like the disciples. Jesus wants us to thrust ourselves out, become a community of believers that demonstrate the power and the generosity of God. God wants to give abundant healing in this house. God wants to give abundant blessings in this house, abundant blessings and provision in businesses. And, you know, the list goes on and on. He wants to bless us. He does, he's not a God of scarcity. Trying to, this is what he's saying. And today, the fundamental human condition continues to be anxiety and worry. It's fueled by the market that we live in. He's pounding into us more and more that we need to, you know, be fearful, short-sighted because you're not going to have enough. And over and over, we're told this. Everything is focused on us. You got to get this for yourself. So we are an anxiety-driven, scarcity, frenetic activity all around us. It, 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 it characterizes our society. Now notice this. We, have you ever noticed? We have never in, our, in my lifetime, I'm older than most of you, we've never in my lifetime had so many time-saving gadgets. Really, I mean, you have time-saving, but you know what we always say? I just don't have enough time. I just, I just don't have enough time. So Jesus comes along and he has an antidote for all this, this idea of we don't have enough time. He says, I'm going to give you something. I'm going to give you this principle. Operate in a Sabbath rest. He says, as shown in the creation account, Sabbath, which is God's day of rest, is based on abundance. There's more than enough. Do you know what we normally do on Sabbath? Instead of setting a day, a day apart for rest, we get caught up with everything we didn't get done. He says, and, and frankly, most of us don't practice the Sabbath. We use Sabbath to catch up on these, but honoring the Sabbath is a form of witness. It tells the world that there is enough. There is abundance. And we have gotten enough done. And there is enough time. And when, when, when we gather as the church every Sunday, we should ponder these stories that declare scarcity to be false. Come on, we need to encourage each other. The impromptu hillside meal that Jesus provides. A barren desert blossoming with manna. An earth fully equipped to meet everyone's needs. That's what God brings in the community of faith in believers. That's why we have to have this mindset. And this question, what if one of the links between the creator's generosity and our neighbor's need is us as the community of God? Because it is. People don't care what you believe until they know how much you care. I'm telling you, 
lining up and just giving something to someone in the form of provision is a powerful message. Last, was it last week or week week before, I think, Chris talked about the story about his friend who paid for a whole line of ice cream. And Chris sat down. He told me this. He told me the story so many times that I could tell the story back to him. But he was so touched. A simple thing of purchasing someone's ice cream turned them into, wow, that's, some of them were crying. Cry over ice cream? It wasn't the ice cream. It was the expression of generosity. And I want to tell you this. People aren't going to come to church just to hear what you believe. They really want to know how much you care. And if we start being generous, it's going to turn the world upside down. You've got to start looking for places to be generous. You say, but Pastor, I just don't have enough money or I don't have resources. Oh, you have so many things. You have gifts. You have time. You do have resources. Go into your house. Look around. Look what you have in your house. That's what Elijah told the widow. Look what you have in your house. Give it away. See what God does. You see, giving something to someone turns their attention from scarcity to abundance. And they say to themselves, well, maybe there is miracles in the world. All of a sudden, you've turned them to Jesus. You didn't preach at them. You didn't tell them to get to church, you're going to go to hell. I hate that. Kind, the kindness of God is what leads us to repentance. Okay, did you catch this word today? I've been all over the map here, but I'm trying to give you the elements of the church and what's going to make us successful. It starts with planning. It moves through all the other elements that I talked about, and it runs on the rails of prayer and generosity. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com.